Welcome to the pod. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. In and through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. And I'm Tim. And I'm Marshall. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I don't even know what it was. You just like delayed for a while, and then I thought you're just like staring deeply into my eyes, deeply into my soul, and I thought, am I doing the intro? Even though that's definitely not my thing. And then as soon as I just finally just bit it you were like yeah anyways it's like when you have prayer and you're like everyone just pray if you feel led to pray (laughs) you give it a little bit of space and then you go to start and someone else starts at the same time i i I found it to be like when you come to a four-way stop and the other person definitely stopped first it's their right of way yeah it's them it's on them and you're waving to them and they're like no 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 and then finally you're fine okay I'm not legally in my rights to go, but I'm going to go. And then they go at the same time. And you're like, what? That's <laughs> that's what that was. Yeah, I guess I spend more time at prayer meetings than I do four-way oh, stops. Oh, don't even start with me. Okay, so uh, today we are going to be covering um, a pretty good chunk of history. Kind of uh, a pretty well a couple hundred years, actually. We're going to be covering, you know, 800 to about, the year 1000-ish. Yeah. Um, so big chunk, obviously, if people think about that. I mean, that's that's 10% of church history, essentially. Um, mm. Obviously, not all the episodes are going to be like this. It's going to slow down a little bit, and then it's going to slow down a lot for the remainder of the year, uh, partly just because people write more stuff later on in history. I mean, that's kind of part of what it is. Yeah, this is the effect of the Dark Ages. Right, yeah. Right? When you when you have a period where people aren't doing things, mm. there's not a lot to talk about. Right, yeah. I mean, we literally are coming into an age of the do-nothing kings. Well, I mean, so they were doing things, but it was mostly just killing each other. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... Yeah, no, I hear you. No, it... it in order to talk about it, it has to be worth recording. Sure, yeah. And things weren't recorded because there wasn't a lot to talk about. Or because there was far fewer people who could record things. Yeah. I mean, but that is going, th- there's going to be a corner turned in this episode that right. might alleviate that because we've talked about the Dark Ages and kind of the slowdown of, of the amount of material that we have for this time period in history. And then mm-hmm. that's going to start to shift, it's going to start to change. Um, you know, as we get into things, but I, I have a short list of things that were going on during this period. Let's hear it. Of 800 to 1,000. The quadratic formula. Did you do any of that in high school, Tim? Oh, yeah. 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 Functions and all that fun stuff. I, I honestly couldn't tell you what the quadratic formula is. I learned it well enough to answer questions about it on a test and then promptly forgot it and right. has not uh, caused any problems for me throughout mm-hmm. the rest of my adult life. And unless you're maybe an engineer who probably has computer technology to help you with that stuff, anyways, uh, it's not going to serve you any purpose. Uh, maybe a math teacher. A math teacher needs to learn the quadratic formula. So that they can pass it on and pass perpetuate this ridiculousness. Vanity. Yeah, but it was developed by Indian mathematicians in this era. Yeah, you know what? A lot of, a lot of the light to shine on things that were actually going on mm. are mathematical and algebraic. Yep. And from the east. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so whether it's the Muslim world or in this case the Hindu world, there are advancements in the, the mathematics that are happening at this time period in history. Significant ones. Um, this also marks the beginning of what's called the medieval warm period in Europe. So, so climate change is not always caused by human activity. Although sometimes it is. Although sometimes it is. I mean, some people say it never is, but I mean, we're not going to we're not going to wade into those waters right now. But there was a, a warming, at least in, in Europe, we know, uh, during this period. And it actually made uh, Europe optimal for agriculture. So we talked about the development of the, the new plow, I think, last episode or the one before. Also kind of ideal agriculture um, based on the weather. So Europe in general, is going to have better crop yields for a while. Mm-hmm. And that's actually going to benefit them for something that's coming up in an episode or two, a couple episodes maybe. Um, the Christian Nubian kingdom in Sudan reached its, its apex. And this might be surprising to people that there were there were prominent Christian kingdoms in Africa during this time period. Mm-hmm. Despite uh, the invasion of the... Uh the Muslim caliphate. Yeah. 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 So this is kind of South of Egypt, I guess, right. Uh, where this is happening, um, over kind of on our hemisphere, uh, we see the collapse of the kind of the, the most central Mayan civilization. They've kind of reached their peak and now they're declining. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll be succeeded by other, other groups who obviously will come into contact with, uh, Europeans in a few hundred years, but, but that's kind of happening. Um, Norse invaders, so Vikings, uh, settle into northern France. They think, hey, this is a pretty good spot to hang out and are Christianized and kind of adopt a bit of the Frankish culture, become the Normans. Yeah. The Normans were originally Norse. So the queen, who is descended from Normans, is descended, they are descended from Vikings from Norway. Kind of an interesting bit of history that people don't, Often remember, uh, yeah. And as they're Christianized, there's like some really interesting interplay. Probably nothing that we can get into in the podcast, but some interplay between the expectations of those who come from mm. the Norse gods into Christianity. Sure, yeah. There's some cultural differences that right. that need to be worked out, and maybe we'll get into a little bit. But yeah, I, I would say I would say this way that those Norse gods are really big on magic. Mm. And the blending of miracle and magic is kind of the the root of a lot of those differences. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely becomes a thing. Uh, meanwhile, over uh, uh, to the east, gunpowder is discovered by Chinese alchemists. The ironic thing is that they, they come to this discovery as they're trying to develop um, the elixir of immortality. <laughs> so they're trying to come up with a potion that'll make the emperor live forever. And instead they create gunpowder, which has taken a lot of lives. Let's put it that way. I don't know about more lives than anything else, but it's taken a lot of lives. How do you begin to pursue an elixir of immortality? I have no idea. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like the kind of thing that like third and fourth grade kids would do in the backyard. Okay. Like you just start mixing stuff together. <laughs> like like a I don't even, lion and some. Clover. I don't even know where to start, but let's just this and this. 
<laughs> some mud and some pebbles. And then you, but then you have like to test this to to do a proper scientific method. Yeah. Right. Like you have to give it to a person. Then you got to hang out for like fifty years to see if that person eventually dies. Yeah, I feel like ingesting gunpowder is probably not great for you. Right. But <laughs> but let's just say it was water from a specific spring. Right. You give that water to a person, you're like, that person has not yet died. So far, <laughs> the experiment works. <laughs> 50 years later, the person dies, and you're like, all right, back to the drawing board. Like, how long does it take to prove your theories and to test them? That's a good question. That's a great question, Tim. But if we come back to church history... <laughs> we come back to the point. <laughs> we come back to the thing that we're talking about. And this is still kind of historical information, but relevant to church history. The most important historical character of kind of the late 8th and early 9th century was a guy by the name of Charlemagne. Charlemagne uh, becomes king of the Franks in 768 at the age of 24 when his father dies. It's incredible how young these people are oh, that yeah. we talk about. Yeah, king of arguably the most powerful uh, European kingdom at the time, 24 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few years later, conquered the Lombards who had control of most of Italy. So now he's the king of France and Italy. Um, he leads invasions into Muslim-held Spain against the pagan Saxons of Germany, expands his territory significantly, um, very, very significantly. Um, he's known uh, by certain titles, one of the, which is the father of Europe, uh, which is, that's, that's big. That's a title. That's a title. Uh, but the one he ultimately gets on Christmas Day in the year of 800, is the Holy Roman Emperor. Mm. And who is it that crowns him the Holy Roman Emperor? But the Pope. The Pope, yeah. Which is a significant transition. Very significant. Because now, where we've, where we've seen cooperation between governments and the church, mm. now we see the church stamping the approval on a pol politician. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning too, like over in Constantinople, you had the Byzantine Empire who sure. were directly like they were they were descendants of Constantine. Mm -hmm. They were Roman emperors. Im the imperial bloodline continued. And I wonder I just wonder what they thought of all the holy Roman they're like, "Wait a second. <laughs> That's what I am. <laughs> who's this who's this French dude?" To call himself Holy Roman Emperor, but that's what the Pope decided. Right, but this is where we start seeing in the demise, the demise of Rome is that it divides. Yes. We've already talked about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this is where we see those divisions severing deeper and deeper and deeper. Oh, yeah. To the point that, in some regards, they completely ignore each other and just sort of do what they're going to do. Sure. And then in other regards... They claim authority over each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the only time I want to acknowledge you is to tell you what I want you to do. Yeah, yeah. To tell you what's going to become of you. I mean, we're going to get deep into that next week. Oh, yeah. But but the, 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 the fissures are opening. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, they've already been... Like, it's been, this has been a long time coming, but these types of decisions are... You know, you can just imagine what the, you know, the holy the man who thought he was the Holy Roman Emperor in, in Byzantium or Constantinople uh, thought about uh, yeah Charlemagne being crowned 
crowned that king. Now, Charlemagne surrounded himself, though, with a lot of intelligent individuals. One was a guy by the name of Alcuin, who was uh, an English monk and a scholar who became a close friend and advisor to Charlemagne. And at that time, he was considered to be the most learned man in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a number of things. He perfected what's called the Carolingian minuscule. That That's essentially just a version of the alphabet that could be universally um, read and written and copied across uh, across Europe. So th- th- these little things, I mean, it sounds silly, right? Like th- this one guy just like writes the alphabet in a particular way, but th- it creates a certain degree of continuity mm-hmm. um, that can can cross national boundaries that is going to help bring Europe back towards a certain degree of enlightenment, education, interconnectivity that it hasn't really enjoyed since the fall of the Roman Empire hundreds of years before. Right. Well, it, that's just how innovation works, though. It always works in these these sparks of what it will become, mm. right? We, we very seldom get a finished, polished product and watch that change mm. things, right? But where would we be today if Mark Zuckerberg hadn't said, what if email was a little more public in a way that guys that go off to college, ladies that go off to college are able to catch up with their high school friends and say, this is what I'm up to now. Right. Yeah. Right. And so if you've got a college email address, you can join this platform, find your other, your classmates from high school that are in college and you guys can keep in touch in this sort of more public form of email. Yeah. Or if the inventors of Twitter hadn't said, you know what, what we need is a messaging system inside of our company so that we don't have to send voicemails and phone calls and emails to each other. We can just sort of internally pass along what's going on in a way that people can grab it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Those things have become Facebook and Twitter mm-hmm. in a way that has really shaped the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but that they didn't begin as those things, right? No, no, you're right. Yeah. And and the unification of power. Charlemagne essentially controls what is now France, parts of Spain, Italy, Germany, um, a, 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 signi- a larger portion of territory than any European country holds today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what that does is that kind of unified um, authority leaves space for a, a renaissance, actually. It's actually referred to as the Carolingian Renaissance, the Carolingians being the, the name of the, the dynasty that Charlemagne is from. Um, and so in this kind of renaissance, in, in kind of the, the late Dark Ages, um, we see advances in literature, in writing, in arts, architecture, legal reform, biblical studies all of a sudden are back to the forefront on a wide range of of subjects, all of a sudden there is now this renewed uh, desire to learn and grow and adapt. And part of that is moving forward. And part of that is actually reaching back as well to kind of the glory of Rome, trying to recapture that as well. Yeah. And and part of it is a religious political move. Oh, right. So Charlemagne, uh, Charlemagne has this great interest in not only the politics that he is a part of mm-hmm. and running, 
But he also has an interest in the church. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he does every night before he goes to bed is, uh, short of Netflix, <laughs> he, he has someone read to him from City of God yeah. every night. And when you get to the end, you just start it over again. Mm. And so his, the, the shaping of the way that he sees his kingdom growing is based on Augustine's City of God. Mm -hmm. If you miss that episode, basically Augustine recognizes that there is, uh, we are citizens of two kingdoms, a heavenly kingdom under God, Mm. and an earthly kingdom under man. Mm -hmm. The two will never be amalgamated. But if they were to be amalgamated, it would probably look something like this. <laughs> and so Charlemagne says, mm. well, I can do that. Yeah. yeah. And, and it changes the way that he wants to govern. Now, the issue with Charlemagne and the city of God, when Augustine writes the city of God, he is saying a godly kingdom could exist as reprobate hearts are made alive in Christ, affected by the Holy Spirit, and led to live and cooperate in a Christ-like manner. Thus, their voting, their business, and their politics would reflect the principles of Christianity. Right. Charlemagne got that flipped. <laughs> Charlemagne comes at it to say, hey, you know what? As the king, the Holy Roman Emperor, yeah. I can just require people to be baptized. Right. Yeah. Be baptized and act like a Christian. Yep. Whether you like it or not. Yeah, it's a top-down. And so he, he flips the concept entirely. So mm -hmm. what, what we end up with really has no resemblance of what Augustine was pushing for. Not, not really, no. But he would say based entirely off of it. Yeah. He got it exactly backwards. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and so he, he starts pushing for things. And this is where we start seeing required baptisms. Mm -hmm. If your child is not baptized by the age of one, mm. it could mean the death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. The death penalty <laughs> for not dunking your baby. Mm-hmm. Or um, sprinkling, or who knows what. They whatever, did whatever it ends up being. <laughs> who knows what it was then? Baptize yeah. your babies, mm -hmm. or it could be the death penalty for you. <laughs> yeah, I and mean that's huge. That is huge, and I, and it. Sorry. No, go ahead. It it starts to show us a couple of things that we're going to see last for a very long time, and in some ways still exists in Europe. Mm. Right, that the baptismal record is the same as a birth certificate. Sure. Right? Like, yeah. it is a legal document mm -hmm. uh, for for children. Yeah. Um, and all the way, even through the Reformation, they're going to be having this discussion, right? You're born in Geneva, you're baptized mm -hmm. when you're born, right? Yep. That's the way that it goes. Yep. We see it denominationally in the churches today. Sure. But we saw it, at, we saw it and still, in some cases, do see it as a state thing. Mm-hmm. In Europe. Oh, yeah. And this, totally. is, this is where it begins with Charlemagne. Yeah. I've done some genealogical work, and sometimes once you get far back enough, baptism dates are easier to determine than birth dates, for sure. Mm -hmm. like, and, and you don't have to go that far back to get to that point. Um, sorry. And also, mm. interesting side note that I saw in there, Charlemagne mm -hmm. required his advisors 
to refer to him in the court of decision-making, not as Charlemagne, but as David. What? I yeah. didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so he had this approach of, like, now, okay, Charlemagne, obviously, we we look back and it's archaic and seems contrary to, you know, what, what we think is right. And, and, and it was in, in a lot of ways. But... The the desire was that there would be this moral regeneration of society through learning, through adherence to laws that were, at least in Charlemagne's mind, based on biblical principles. Um, and, and the idea of, of the idea of you know morality increasing while learning increases is one of those things that you can kind of point to statistically, sure, to some degree, yep. right? Like places where education isn't available to children tend to be the most violent places on earth, mm-hmm. right? Like th- there, there is an aspect of that, that when you have the ability to learn and grow and adapt and whatnot, that it does produce a healthier society. Um, but, you know, so anyways, but, but, you know, the importance of teaching Latin was, was really important at this time because we have, what we refer to as the, the Latin languages or the, you know, the, Romance languages, Fran- uh, French, Italian, Spanish, etc. Um, they're all kind of divergent from Latin, mm-hmm. and at this point in time, they're they're diverging so much that people can't really understand each other. So you need kind of this unified language once again, right? When we talk way back about you know the New Testament be- being written Koine because Koine was this universal language that that most people. Through a variety of cultures, could speak. Latin is the importance of kind of unifying and standardizing Latin is very important at this point in time. Now, a lot of the average everyday peasant folk couldn't speak Latin, but at least you had scholars from various countries who could interact with one another intelligently. And and even that, the language of choice, is a bit of the the division between the East and the West. Oh yeah, because this is only the West. Right. That is doing the Latin thing. Yeah. The East is sticking with Greek. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is the, I mean, from a biblical standpoint, the original language in which the New Testament was written. Yeah, why not? Right. And we have the, the, even the Old Testament translated into Greek a couple hundred years before Jesus was even born. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so they, they have this network of schools. And Alcuin, this this advisor of Charlemagne, actually creates a standardized curriculum for this whole network of schools. So everyone is learning essentially the same thing, whether you're in the north of France or southern Italy or Germany or wherever you might be, and they're copying manuscripts. And not just biblical ones, but not just biblical ones. They're copying Roman historians and Greek philosophers. And all of a sudden, again, you're getting this kind of this expansion of people's grasp of ancient documents, biblical and otherwise, mm-hmm. that now people are like, oh, we can read Cicero. We can read Aristotle or we can, you know, read the early church fathers or the, the, the biblical texts themselves. So there are good things happening that are coming from this time. Um, the earliest copies that we have of the writings of Julius Caesar come from this time. Um, yeah, and so you have you know Roman style of art and architecture spreads, standardized currency, all of these all of these things that are happening under this you know 
renaissance, I guess. Yeah, you also start seeing a bit of that moral reform, that education and moral reform within the church as well. Mm. Uh, one little interesting fact thing that I saw, we, we talked last time about how the Dark Ages lead to this degradation of the church mm. because we have illiteracy even amongst the clergy. Right. And so what are they doing to bring the scripture? They they can't even read it, right? right. Yeah. Because not because they don't want to, because they can't read. Right. And so it it becomes very steeped in traditionalism mm. and not steeped in individuals who have studied scripture and are bringing their convictions. Uh and and also a lot of these if you don't want to be conscripted into war, then you've got to join a, a monastery essentially or yeah. be be appointed you know my son you know save him from being slaughtered give him a position within the church kind of a thing right mm-hmm. and so these positions and and this isn't to say it's the end of it it is by no means the end of it mm-hmm. it's not even the worst of it no but it's beginning and one other really fascinating tidbit that i found in this for hundreds of years at this point uh during the the presentation of the worship services, the local clergy would wear specific clothes for the church services, you know, whatever sort of robes and hats and whatever it is that was a part of their attire. Mm. But in this period, under Charlemagne, they start, for the first time, having to wear specific garments 24-7. Okay. So, like, the idea that, you know, if you're clergy, you're dressed as clergy yep. all the time. Right. And it would be, you could be excommunicated for being seen in public, dressed otherwise. Wow. The reason was, it kept them from going undercover into taverns and brothels. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> in civilian clothes. <laughs> Because that was becoming a problem. Right. <laughs> and so the church institutes this this new position right. that the pastor's always going to be dressed like the pastor, mm-hmm. just so that anyone that sees him coming in or out is going to quickly identify him. And there's this sort of like social accountability right. available there because spiritual accountability before God wasn't enough. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that's funny so uh, all of so all of our uh friends who don't get to wear jeans and a t-shirt midweek <laughs> but still wear you know the collar and oh man this is imagine? the foundations wow wow that was its purpose originally yeah there there are okay so i'll, I'll kind of end off this whole thing about charlemagne just with a brief thing the, this unified empire does end up splitting up uh, in 843, there's something called the Treaty of Verdun. Um, three grandsons of Charlemagne um, essentially split up this uni- this uh, unified empire into kind of Upper France, Lower France, and Germany, essentially, mm-hmm. kind of is what it ends up looking like. And so it kind of ended this dream of the United Europe under a single banner. But there was still, I mean, there was still some there was enough kind of unifying things that had happened that, um, you know, this work to move education and different things forward would, would continue as far as theological debates. Um, there's a, there's a couple, there's a couple meaningful ones. 
The first is the resurgence of something called the adoptionist heresy. Mm-hmm. Adoptionist heresy, the fancy name for it. Adoptionist, might, people might think that's the fancy name, but no. It gets fancier. How about dynamic monarchianism? Mm. Mm. Yeah, dynamic monarchianism. In, 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 in the most simple terms I can put it, it's the belief that Jesus was adopted as the Son of God at either his baptism, resurrection, or ascension, rather than being the Son of God. Right. So, so basically, Jesus was a man like you and me, mm. but he was so good mm. that God just said, how could you not bless that guy with deity? Mm. And so we'll make him, we'll make him the Son. Yeah. We've heard this. Sure. We've heard this preached in our own town. Locally and modernly. Yeah. And in a church that would consider itself evangelical. Yeah, we were surprised. But yeah, anyways, we won't, <laughs> we won't name names, but it was uh, surprising. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, so now there were some variations of this. Admittedly, not everyone took this extreme approach, there were variations that came up. So some people said, well, okay, no, it was Jesus' divine nature was always the son of God, but his human nature was adopted later once he proved in his humanity that he was faithful and all these kind of nuanced things. But ultimately, this kind of, this approach to understanding who the person of Jesus Christ is, is problematic and and unbiblical. Um yeah, and in his more extreme forms, the idea is that some would go so far as to say Jesus didn't even understand right, who yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. Um, which would make you ask the question, did Mary know? <laughs> and now all of a sudden, in light of adoptionism, the song makes far more sense. Right. <laughs> Although Mary did know, Mary because the angel tells know? her. Yeah, that's true. And her cousin acknowledges it. Yeah. When John the Baptist flip flops around in her tummy over it, and yeah. there's quite a bit of evidence yeah. that yes, and the people like in the temple when she brought him to be dedicated, yeah. and yeah, there's a whole lot of people who recognize who he is long before when the adoptionists would say he was adopted by God. Either either it is the shepherds, or... the shepherds had something to say, the magi. It there's there's yeah, yeah. The quick answer to that is just yes, <laughs> Mary knew. Yeah, yes, yeah, she did. Um, the other, the other big theological concern that, that I found in my research was the conflict over something referred to as the filioque or filioque, filioque. I, I don't know the pronunciation. Sure. Essentially what it is, it's the addition of a simple phrase to the Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. So Council of Nicaea, we're talking 300s. Remember Santa punched... Arius in the face. Right. There's a whole bunch of, you know, who is Jesus? Is he consubstantial? Whatever. So they developed a creed to outline the consensus that the church had at that very early stage in church history, something that is continually held by a wide range of churches of a variety of denominational backgrounds. But there is this addition of this brief phrase, and there's contention over whether or not it was original or not. Um, Probably wasn't, but that's whatever. Um, it's in regards to when referring to the Holy Spirit. So we talk in the Nicene Creed, it talks about how the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Mm-hmm. The filioque is the inclusion of the brief phrase and the Son. 
so that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, the Latin churches in Western Europe had started including this sometimes hundreds of years before, but things kind of come to a head in the late 800s. Yeah, the creed is adjusted without consulting the Eastern Church. Right. This is that part of the story where I say they just don't even talk to each other. Yeah. Right? The The East Hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, does the Spirit come from just the Father? So, so much of the relationship with the Holy Spirit with the rest of the Godhead comes from the book of John. And there's two key verses, uh, John 14, 26 and 15, 26. So 14, 26 in our ESV translation says, Jesus speaking here, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I've said to you. So the Father is sending the Spirit in Jesus' name. John 15, 26, Jesus continuing to talk about this. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And so the question, it's like, it's a bit of a semantic thing. And Mm -hmm. also understanding that the Western church is using a Latin translation and the Greeks are using their understanding of Koine to kind of do this. Uh, is it proceeding from, or is it sent by? You know, some church fathers put it that that God sends the spirit, the Father sends the spirit through the Son. There's all this kind of nuance to it. Um, personally, I would say the Nicene Creed doesn't need to be updated, but the update isn't wrong. That's my, I guess that's my perspective Sure. to say that like, see, that that's the thing is right. Like, is it, is it wrong to say that the spirit proceeds from the father? No. Is it wrong to say that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son? No. But do you need to go back, reach back, uh, you know, 700 years and adjust something that was agreed upon? I don't, I yeah, don't. Yeah. And the Eastern churches struggle with it is, is that it speaks, there's, there's this ontological aspect of it, right? Where. Mm. The origin, then, of the Holy Spirit, in their mind, uh, is a product of the Father and the Son, and then not co-eternal. Right. Because, or, or even consubstantial, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Must be of another substance, a, a product of the two. Right. In some way. And, and in their minds, lessen, it, it doesn't... They're not trying to lessen the Father and the Son. They're trying to keep from lessening the Spirit. I got right. a little space for that. Yeah, and I think, I think again, like when we're talking about Trinitarian theology, there is always going to be a sense in which we can't fully wrap our minds around it. Mm-hmm. So to let things get to the point over cement, was it sent by, proceeded through, you know, what, whatever, whatever kind of various interpretation... It's not going to be a deal breaker on the deity of Christ or the deity of the Holy Spirit. But for whatever reason, they allow this to get out of hand. Photius, so Photius was a a patriarch of Constantinople. So that's kind of an archbishop, whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call it, of Constantinople. And he calls a council and charges the Western church, the Roman church, with heresy for this. Right. Heresy? Really? 
Uh, okay. Um, well, her- heresy. It that- doesn't. It doesn't end there. No, it doesn't. Like the, no, it doesn't because so the council the declared, petty slabs continue. Oh yeah, so the count this council in Constantinople declares the Pope anathema, accursed. Yeah, accursed, which is strong language. Uh, excommunicated and deposed. We decided over here, a couple thousand miles away, you're not the Pope anymore. Right. So peace out. Um, obviously, the Roman Church decides, no, we're going to have our own council. And actually, it's you guys who are deposed, and our pope is perfectly fine. Um, and they send a messenger all the way to Constantinople <laughs> oh, man. to lay their letter of excommunication on the altar yeah. of sacrament in their largest church. Yeah. And and again, this plop happens next week, too. We'll see. This is like, it's like a move. This is like a power move. So it's this, a, it, You know what it is? You can't fire me, I quit. <laughs> right, right. And so this division, uh, which would have ramifications, it's not, there's not a sense of finality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take almost a couple hundred years, and and we'll, we'll talk about it next week when it kind of really cracks wide open. But but this is one of the key dividing points. I mean, when people start excommunicating each other, things just yeah, things are getting out of hand. Yeah, I. So on this position, and, and on a, a couple of other positions too, mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this a couple of times through the history podcast. I can see where it would run the risk of coming across as anti-intellectualism. Mm. I would hope that people would know me personally well enough to know that that's not the case. Sure. In my mind, it's not that. It's not a a diminishing of the worship of knowing God well, mm. which is what theology is, mm-hmm. the worship of knowing God well. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead about prioritization. Sure. Yeah, it's elevating an interpretation on a difficult subject to the level of that which is foundational and obviously true in the Christian faith. Right. So when our commission is to go into all the world and share the gospel, mm. which is not a point of controversy, it, people agree on what the gospel is. Mm-hmm. Baptizing in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Mm-hmm. To stand before God and be like, hey, did you do that thing that I asked you to do? Be like, I didn't get around to it. Mm. But this thing that you didn't ask me to do, I fought to the death and divided the church over yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Right? At that point, I just can't see him going, huh. Yeah, I guess I didn't see that one coming, and that's why I didn't instruct you in that way. Right, right. But good on you. Yeah. I appreciate that, right? Mm-hmm. In my mind, it is more akin to Peter yanking out his sword to defend Jesus in the garden. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Yeah. 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 I, we could go on about this, but we're going to have a— better opportunity to go deeper i think next week yeah when we actually see this thing split wide open but just just for our listeners to understand that there's there's things happening that are a long time coming and they're significant in and of themselves i mean Mm -hmm. there this is a schism it's it's considered to be a temporary thing and there is a certain degree of unity at least public display of unity um despite these continuing divisions under the surface that will will continue yeah and i think what so when i look at the 800s the ninth century Mm -hmm. uh there is also 
a revival of a discussion about communion. Mm-hmm. Is Christ physically present in body? Yeah. At communion? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, or yeah. is he not? Yeah. And, and in some ways at this point, they're kind of saying yes and no at the same time. Right. And just practicing along that way. But eventually. <laughs> so Lutheran. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but technically no. Or no, but technically yes. <laughs> it, but eventually they're, they're, they are in this period going to have some standoff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. And they're going to, they're going to claim Ambrose and Augustine mm. who are not in agreement with them, mm-hmm. but they're going to claim them anyway. Sure. Uh, and, <laughs> and eventually interest, I find it so bizarre that the physical presence mm. wins out in this. I, I just don't see that the apostles with access to the, flesh and blood of Christ mm. would be given bread as ceremony. Because mm-hmm. the question always comes down to what does is mean if it doesn't mean is? <laughs> this is my right. body. Yeah. Right? Yeah. As though like a metaphor didn't exist. <laughs> What's a right. metaphor? Right. <laughs> as if Jesus wasn't famous for teaching from parables and yeah, metaphors. No, 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 no. Everything was literal, of course. Right. <laughs> and so they, the argument is always, well, then is must mean something other than is. Mm. Right? And that's the so, sort of like, that's where you've become illogical. Right. <laughs> um, but they had access to Jesus' flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. And he offers them a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. But obviously, that's the case because yeah. I'm Baptist. But this is also going to be a thing that continues it's for actually, hundreds of years. Yeah, it's actually going to even like kind of manifest itself in weird ways as as to like what type of bread should be used. That's more of a next mm-hmm. week thing. But like that's that's a, also another an interesting question. That which it, yeah, which I have I have battled with the church. Just a light battle. Yeah. Just like I made my point and they yeah, uh, yeah. they went along with it. But yeah, yeah uh, fair enough. So, so it does as a conversation, not necessarily as a divisive battle, mm-hmm. but it does continue. But sure. for next week, yeah. Uh, other things, election, mm. the doctrine of election starts some low key rumbles. The idea of does God elect those who would be saved, mm. or does He double election elect? Right. These will be saved and these will be condemned. Right. How does election work mm-hmm. is going to be a thing that is uh, is discussed in this early period, but isn't really going to find its legs no. until we get closer to the Reformation. Yeah, which is, we're still a ways out, but we, we will get there soon enough. Um, around the same time, into the early 900s, we see some reforms. And this is kind of reflecting the relationship between church and state, which is going to be a a big an, an ongoing issue i mean it, it's been an ongoing issue uh and continues to be uh in church history so since benedict the 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 kind of guy who started the benedictine uh reforms of monastic life since since him things have been cruising along relatively nicely in the monasteries um but by the beginning of the 900s things were in crisis there's a couple things happening there's repeated Viking raids happening. So Vikings have realized that most priests don't defend themselves and most churches <laughs> are full of wealth. So they're right. like, wow, okay, so we could attack cities with defenders or we could attack churches with none 
And lo and behold, the churches have more money than the cities do half the time. So that's that's like more the, money, fewer weapons. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. it's, it's easy pick, it's slim pick, and or easy picking. Sorry, uh, low hanging fruit, whatever analogy you want to use. Um, also, there's I mean, a lot of these. Uh, monks and monasteries are living in a certain degree of poverty. There's corrupt political systems around them. And it was believed that the main issue was the fact that there was secular interference in church life. So there was a bit of this like symbiotic relationship between these monasteries and the feudal system that existed. Um, so monasteries at this point or up to this point generally had a patron lord or lady, a noble mm-hmm. person who would oftentimes found the monastery and considered the monastery to be an extension of their own personal property. So they would take income from those places. They would use them for whatever means they had. Oftentimes they, they were almost like the equivalent of a retirement property. So rather than going to Florida, you went to St. Mildred's in wherever, right? Okay. When you were done ruling, that was kind of their, that was the jam at, at this time in history. And, and so what would often happen is that these nobility would, dictate how the monastery would be run when they lived there. Like there were things like they would, they would force the monks to adjust their, their singing and praying schedule so that they could sleep in (laughs) stuff like that. So, so, so what ends up happening is there's this new kind of system of reforms that, uh, is started, um, at the, the Abbey of Clooney or whatever. And, and essentially, it's kind of this push to say, hey, let's let these monasteries run themselves and, and not allow this to be, you know, retirement property slash side hustle for the nobility. Right. Um, that's not well received everywhere, obviously. Um, and again, this is another kind of type of thing that is going to kind of get blown wide open in the next couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, something to just be on our radar that's happening, this kind of friction between the nobility and and the clergy. Um, outside of that, you know, we have mission mission uh, to the fringes, right? Like Christianity is continuing to spread in sometimes the, the least expected places, uh, one of which is Scandinavia. So <laughs> as these Vikings are constantly raiding these monasteries, people are like, you know what might stop these guys from like, raping and killing and stealing all our stuff is if we convert them to Christianity. Sure. Right. Which in the long run, it actually works. Not in the short term, not so much, but right. in the long term it works. Um, you know, and so what, what, what happens is in part though, is that these raiders, they're taking slaves or women to be their wives, so essentially still kind of slavery at the, in, in that context, but mm-hmm. they're bringing them back home. These Christians who are forcibly brought into their community. So they're being exposed to the Christian faith kind of secondhand. Um, But eventually, um, as Danish and Norwegian kings begin taking lands throughout Christianized Europe, whether that's in Germany or France or Britain, they're sometimes, they sometimes convert. And sometimes it's to kind of appease their opponents, to create peace treaties, to kind of put their new conquered subjects at ease. Whether or not these were legitimate conversions at first. It's going to be on a case-by-case basis. And there's going to be what we call syncretism, right? There's going to be this blending. Right. Like, oh, we're Christians now, but we're still going to offer that sacrifice to Thor just in case. 
right? right? <laughs> like there's going to be a bit of that kind of stuff that's going to linger around for a little while. Um, there's a guy named Harold Bluetooth who is the first kind of major monarch in the Scandinavian world. He's baptized around 960. Um, and he's going to essentially, he's going to turn the Vikings Christian. or He and, and others. Leif Erikson? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. There's, yeah, he's an interesting character too. I mean, you've got uh, Olaf Tryggvigsson and you got these different kings and, and whatnot in the Scandinavian world who are kind of adopting Christianity. And, and what it ends up doing, I mean, it adjusts their tactics slightly, mm-hmm. but they're still all about taking other people's stuff. Right. They just kind of stamp Jesus' name on it. It's, it's a bit of a, <laughs> it's one of those things where like, it, it's still the medieval world. Right? Yeah, the Europeans don't do much better. No, no, if no, at no. all. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, there, there is, <laughs> there is this really unfortunate period of hundreds of years mm. where conquest is done in the name of God. Sure. Yeah. In a way that it, it shouldn't be. Whenever people want to say religion has been the source of most of the world's wars. Mm. And Christianity is brought into that. Mm. It's a false statement. Yeah. Because Christianity is not calling for these wars. Christianity is being used as a justification for these wars. Right, yeah. Right? When we're given the Great Commission, it's to go and preach the gospel. Mm -hmm. Not to go and conquer a people and force them into baptism. Yeah. Which is what is being done. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, this this idea of divine conquest, a divine vision to take this land and declare it for Christ is is always a wrong theology mm-hmm. being played out. Yep. And it, it is not that Christianity is leading to this kind of violence. It's that this violence needs a justification. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, reali- the reality is, is that people in the, those time periods uh, in the middle ages in particular were just regardless of their um, religious affiliation uh, were just generally terrible to one another. In fact, people have just generally been terrible to one another throughout all of human history until relatively recent. I mean, people still are terrible, but maybe, maybe we're a little less terrible recently, I think, or I, th- I think at least the terrible things that people do to each other we we were quicker to recognize it as being wrong, mm-hmm. uh, but there's nothing novel about people being bad. Uh, to, sure, to put it at a very simple simple level. And post millennialism, children, is the belief that the world is continually bettering mm-hmm. until Christ returns and it is culminated. Yeah, I mean, there's ups and downs in the short term, but over the long term, the post millennial view does state that things generally improve. And you would claim that as evidence for post-millennialism. Yeah, I, personally, I would say sure. that the world is, uh, on a variety of fronts, is, is much better than it's been throughout most of history. And although I'm not a post-millennial, I would say that's true. Another area where, and this will probably be kind of where we, we land the plane, because it brings us right up to about the year 1000. Uh, another group of people who are converted to Christianity are the Kievan Rus. Mm. The Kievan Rus, which, I mean, obviously is going to, uh, I mean, be interesting in light of recent political events sure because you have the Rus, the russians right whose capital is 
Kiev, the Kievan Rus. Now, this is not this is not a statement about like the current geopolitical situation, but it is interesting because it involves uh, uh, people who live in this region who were pagans up until this point, who were who were not um, Christianized, and yet now both the Ukrainians and the Russians are Orthodox. Right. And so the story of them getting to this point is that there were there were missionaries sent from Constantinople and and essentially they were these missionaries were were generally kind of accepted kind of begrudgingly like, yeah, sure, your people can come. Who, who cares? Um, there's a princess called Olga of Kiev who travels to Constantinople and embraces Christianity around 945. Now, the problem is, is that Constantine VII, the emperor in Constantinople, falls in love with her, but she's not, she's not down with that. So she tricks him in, as she is baptized, because when you're, again, in medieval Christianity, when you're baptized into Christianity, you need to have a godparent. A godparent who's not your biological parent who is going to guide you in the faith. So she tricks him into becoming her godfather so that it's inappropriate for them to be wed because she doesn't want to hook up with this guy. Which I think is awesome. Well played. Yeah, I think it's great. She's yeah. like, well, wouldn't it be offensive to God since you're my godfather for us to be married? And he's like, dang, dang. He wanted some of that Russian mail order. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry if that. Ref- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But it was a little bit. It was a little bit like that. Anyways, so I'm sorry. Are we gonna have to? No, we'll be fine. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a reference. It's fine. So later on, though, but here's here's the thing. The Kievan Rus are not universally converted you're still dying i'm sorry i i i did i died a little inside okay. right there. so the kievan rus are not you're not universally uh converted to christianity and then we have uh, a guy named vladimir the great who's the high prince of the mm-hmm. of the rus and um as the story goes he he's conversing with leaders of various religions to kind of determine where he's going to sit because he's kind of drifting away from paganism, but he's not sure where he's going to land. So he meets with Muslims, um, but he doesn't want Islam. Now, keep in mind that Islam had spread well into Asia, like on his borders, right? Significant power at this time. Um, but he doesn't. He's not down with Islam because he likes eating pork, and he says that drinking is the joy of the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, Islam has strict no drinking policy. Um, He's in conversation with the Jews. He sees the loss of Jerusalem as, as proof that the Lord has abandoned them, at least in his mind, so that, that he he's refuses them. Uh, but what really brings him to Christianity is essentially a marriage alliance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Constantinople's threatened by a revolt. They need soldiers. They reach out to him. He says, okay, I'll send you people, but I want to marry someone from the imperial family. And they say, okay, sure, but you got to get baptized. It all works out. He sends the soldiers. The revolt is put down. He gets baptized and then married probably on the same day, uh, which is interesting. Um, and then goes home to Kiev and orders a mass baptism for all the residents of his capital. <laughs> hey, everyone. Missionary dating. Hey, everybody. I found Jesus. And guess what? You're all going to find Jesus today as well. Right. It just like what's going on in the West. Oh, yeah. Totally. At the point of the sword. Essentially, yeah. You're going to be baptized. He, he, there's a statement, something along the lines of, if you're a friend of the high prince, you will be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, 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 you know, is pretty, uh, pretty ominous. If you're not a friend of the high prince, uh, that's going to be a problem for you. Yeah, and, and this is where 
this is where I think people are, I, I hope at least, people are going to start to see how things got so wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I think one thing that we can, you can look into Christianity today, and not the magazine, <laughs> but the state of Christianity as we stand today. Right, yeah. And you can say, how is it that the evangelical world, the Protestant world, mm. is so completely different from the mm. Eastern Orthodox and Catholic worlds? Mm. Mm-hmm. In- entirely different in some areas. Mm-hmm. And how did we get from here to there? Like, where did everything start going wrong? Mm. But you can see in some of these alliances, like people that are like, I've got no heart for God, mm-hmm. but I do like to breathe. I want to continue doing that. Right. My blood is best inside my body and not on the ground. Yeah. So whatever. Right. What is just tell me what you want me to do. Yeah. And this is literally a saving of their own skin and not a transformation of the heart brought to life by God in a in the power of his resurrection. Yeah. The resurrection of Christ. And so But then again, there is a spread of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And there will be some really genuine conversions that come from this. Yeah, oh, of course. Right. Yeah. It's not like God has ceased to be sovereign. Sure. I, I think what we can say is these are not the means of God. Mm-hmm. We would not look at these situations mm-hmm. and say this is what God meant for his church to do. Mm. But at the same time, they are not beyond the reach of God. Oh, for sure. There is there is so much scriptural precedent for the Lord using corrupted and sinful human means and methods to bring about his desire. Right. Right? So while, you know, Vladimir of Kiev ordering his people to be baptized is outside the bounds of what ought to have happened. Mm-hmm. Could God have used that scenario to bring about a greater understanding of himself and the gospel of Christ to the Russian people a thousand years ago? And that that would, that would ultimately lay a foundation for more and more people coming to know him. Uh, yeah. 100%. The same is true with Charlemagne. Oh yeah. In, in the West. Sure. Uh, so to that, I would say, the knowledge of the right knowledge of God mm. and the spread of the gospel is carried out in these places in spite of the church, yes, and not because of the church. Yeah, yeah, that's. I think that's. A, I think that's a fair. That's a fair statement. And I think, to a lesser degree, that's probably still true to some. De- like to some degree. Yeah. I mean, we we can look and we can see our own methods of evangelism and missions work as being better. And perhaps they, they genuinely are. In fact, I think they are. I mm-hmm. think it's, you know, pretty, but they're not perfect. Sure. Right. We still have our own ways of doing things, our own motives and goals and, and whatnot, which, which are less than ideal mm-hmm. and praise God that in his grace, he still uses broken, sinful people like us to bring about his will on earth. And, uh, you know, that, that's not a, that's not a, uh, oh, an out for us to just do what we want and say, well, the Lord will, his will will be done anyways. We ought to conform to what he's revealed to us, but we, we have a, a bit of a, 
a confidence in knowing that even when we are not perfect, God will still work. And that is, that's good news. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. Take care, everyone.